0: ...to share stories of redemption, how God has worked in people's lives. And so as uh, Rebecca comes up to share her testimony, I also want to point out these uh, slips of paper that are here. These are opportunities for you to share your own redemption story. How God has worked in your life. And they're folded in half so that you can write on the inside and then uh, at any point in this service... You can grab one, take a pen, there's pens here as well, write on it, and then at the end of the service, there'll be people collecting them outside. And then we're going to use these uh, in our future services uh, later on this week. So at any point, uh, as you feel uh, led, as something comes to your mind, you make a connection, come up and grab one of these pieces of paper and write on it uh, your own story of redemption, how God has redeemed you. Uh, I'd like to call Rebecca up here, and she's going to talk about uh, her redemption story. And what we first want to do is I want to ask Rebecca um, if there was three adjectives that she could use to describe her life before Christ, what would these adjectives
1: be?
2: Okay, so I'm going to share a little piece of my redemption story after I've come to know Christ. So um, some lies that I was believing about myself through um, just circumstances that had happened and things that I, decisions that I had made. And I was believing about myself that I was unwanted and unworthy of, of love, basically. And that um, ugly and just unworthy and unwanted.
0: So those are, I, I hear, lies and unwanted yeah. and ugly and kind of lies that stifle. So what from there brought you to this after story of redemption? What was the moment or the turning point for that?
2: Yeah, and actually this is really recent. Um I just came back from the Philippines, and this isn't a trip update, but it is a piece of what God did in my life while we were there. We were um, a part of a retreat for women, and um, I got to play a monologue of the woman in Mark chapter 5 who was bleeding for 12 years, and how um, just through her story and the monologue that we shared, I really connected to pieces in my own story and how I, I felt like, connection to this woman who felt a lot of shame and just dirty and unwanted and unworthy of love and um, I was reminded of a time when I was at a young adults retreat with our church and um, I'd gone to a purity session that Michelle Phyllis had done and then talked with her after that and was praying and just saw this vision of myself in a like a white dress like a wedding gown but it was tattered and torn and rugged and I was laying in the mud and um It was completely hopeless and helpless and there was no way I could get out of that spot but then I saw Jesus's hand reach down and um, pull me out and um, that is what I shared at the retreat with the women too and it was something I've never really publicly shared before and I think it was just a piece of me walking through that journey and there's so many other things like um, just studying the word and being really faithful and um, reading his promises. And then it, it tied in also with my sharing that to this token that we gave to the women and because we wanted them to be reminded of um, what Christ does and how um, when we come to him, he replaces the lies that we believe with truth. And so on the, these, this is a compact mirror, and I had wrote those lies that I believed about myself in a dry erase marker on this mirror. And then I talked about how, like, coming to Christ and him pulling me out of that um, wiped it clean. And then I wrote on there, truth about what Christ says that I am. And then it's to remind, and the the women were encouraged to do this, too. So it's to remind them, when you look in this mirror, that's the truth of what, like, who I am to Christ. And when he sees me, that's what he sees. So I guess that's the...
0: that's exactly. You already basically touched on it, but going forward uh, with that testimony and with living this continued, putting aside those lives and embracing this, uh, how has life changed, either day to day or or give me a specific moment that you can share?
2: Yeah, I'd say um, I'm like it's a, a constant um, thing that I have to surrender to the Lord, and it's a uh, it's a daily discipline, and um, some days are easier than others, but just to believe that what he says about me is true and that his opinion of me is what matters and that, like all the, the people and like the thoughts of this world or the um you know the, the views and opinions of man don't matter but what really matters is God and what his his view of me is is what matters.
0: Amen. Thank you Rebecca Three adjectives, Kayla, would uh, describe your life before coming to Christ.
3: Um, So the first word that I can think of is fear. So fear pretty much controlled my life. Um, I was afraid of everything, anything and everything, but ultimately I was really afraid of God. Um, I was afraid that he was going to punish me, that he was going to, he was just waiting for a moment to, like, get me. (laughs) Like, oh, gotcha. Um, That's how I felt. I just uh, felt like that. So the second word that I chose was legalism. Um, So what I did to try and appease God is I just was legalistic. I did everything perfect. I I tried to do everything perfect. I read my Bible. I went to church. I went on mission trips. I served um, even when I didn't want to. I went to church even when my family didn't go. I prayed. I cried out to God all the time. Where are you? I want you. I'm trying. And I was just so... um, I don't know the word. It just legalism. It's so restraining, and I just was like trying and trying and trying, and never just turning the wheels. Um, So the third word um, would be emptiness. That as I was just trying and striving and doing everything right, and you know not and judging everyone else for doing the wrong thing too, um, I never felt full. I never had peace. I never got what I wanted. Um so that's how I would describe my life before Christ.
0: Mm. How it seems like a vicious cycle, right? Of the fear of being locked into that. How what was the turning point? What got you to escape from that?
3: Um actually there were a few things that happened after I came to Moody. Um I read there were a few things that I read. The first thing was a book about grace. I had never heard about grace before. Um, The gospel that I had heard was very moralistic uh, very legalistic and So I read about grace and that really spoke to me Um, And the second thing was I went to an Easter service and I got a book called the cross-centered life and I only read the first chapter I didn't read the whole book, but the first chapter was on legalism Mm. and I realized that I was legalistic that I was trying to spin all of these plates and they were just dropping and I couldn't do it on my own Um, and then I read a passage in scripture that said, um, in that day, many will call out in my name, Lord, Lord, we, but we cast out demons in your name. We prophesied in your name and he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. Um, and that really bothered me because I was like, I'm doing so many things for God, but I, I don't think I know him. Um, and so I... One night there was an event at Moody, and afterwards my roommate came back. My roommate and I came back to our room and we prayed for over an hour. And it was during that time that the Lord revealed Himself to me. um, And I saw myself for the first time as broken. um, Because what I was doing, all my legalism, I thought that I was actually a pretty good person. And everyone else told me that I was a good person, and they wanted to be like me, and they wanted to do all the things I was doing. But for the first time, I saw that I was a sinner and that there was no way I could do it on my own. And so um, I saw in that moment, Jesus following after me and saying, turn around. That's not my way. And I'm like, but I'm doing all of these things for you. And he's like, that's not my way. Um, And so I cried out to Jesus. And I said, Jesus, save me. Um, And he did.
0: Amen. Knowing that. Your redemption is complete and paid for in him. How have those three adjectives been been replaced and how does life look?
3: Um, Number one, I have peace. I'm no longer striving for God's affirmation um, or to please him. Of course, I want to please him. But it's coming instead of working for God's grace, I'm working because of his grace. From his grace, um, I want to please him. And I'm not afraid of being condemned if I do something wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing is I feel free to be a sinner. Mm -hmm. Um, Not in the sense of I feel free to sin, but that when I do, there's, I don't condemn myself. I have, there's grace and there's um, just broken relationship, but that's mended and there's forgiveness. And there's just so much peace in that. And I also have security. Um, that I know for sure that I'm the Lord's and nothing that I can do can change that because nothing that I could do um, could earn it. And so, yeah.
0: I think, I think that's it. That's fantastic. Thank you.
1: Are you the one we've been waiting for? Or should we look for someone else? That was the question that John the Baptist asked his disciples, to tell Jesus. John was in prison. He had gone from preaching repentance and announcing Jesus as the one who was going to turn the people back to God to questioning Jesus from prison. Things had not gone according to John's plan. Sometime before, between baptizing Jesus and being in prison, John began to wonder whether he had hoped all wrong. He had spent all of his life with certain expectations of how God was going to work things out. And when his experience contradicted his expectation of God's work, he was left wondering whether something was wrong with God. We understand where John is coming from. In our minds, God works things out for good for those who love him. But when we don't see the good, when we start wondering whether, uh, whether things are going to work out as they should, we begin to think, is something wrong with God? Are you the one, God, we've been waiting for? To work things out for good, to bring us peace when we see the mess and chaos in our world, to set us free from everything that threatens our well-being. Are you the one who is going to do that? Or should we look for someone or something else. We're pretty good at looking for someone or something else. Whether we realize it or not, most of us have already decided that we can find our peace, our rest, our freedom, our joy somewhere else. And we look for it in all sorts of places. As long as my team wins again, there is my joy. As long as my health is good, there is my peace. As long as this relationship works out, there's my rest. We're all looking for someone or something to place our hope in. A hope that will make sense out of our lives and our world so that we can fit the pieces together and see that we're moving towards being whole and being at peace. This is what is at the heart of John's question. At its core, the question is getting at whether Jesus is the one who will explain how God will make sense out of our lives and our world and show us how to move towards, whole, towards wholeness and being at peace. To put it another way, everyone lives by a larger story that explains how the world works, a story that tells us how we can be whole and at peace. You see, John, like like most people we find in the Gospels, lived by a particular story. It was a story that governed their relationships with one another, with the world around them, and most importantly, with God. Their story was rooted in the Old Testament. In the life of the patriarchs that we've been studying over the last several months, it was rooted in the life of King David and his descendants. It was rooted in the prophets and their sermons about who God was and what God was doing. The storyline was this. God loved Israel. And though His presence was no longer with them in the temple, God would one day return as their king. He would destroy all of their enemies and would bring peace and prosperity to His people. So Israel waited for God's reign, waited for his peace and restoration so that they could say, our mighty God is here. For John and the others who encountered Jesus, Jesus was the one who was going to bring about God's reign. It was through Jesus that they would be able to experience God's peace and would be able to see God's plan for his people coming into into being. But John couldn't see it working. It was either not happening fast enough or it wasn't happening at all. So he asked the question that you and I ask every day, whether we know it or not. Are you the one we've been waiting for? Or should we look for someone else? And you know how Jesus responded? Jesus said, watch what I do and you'll have the answer to your question." And nowhere in the Gospels is Jesus' action so closely tied to the answer to this question than in his final days as he and his disciples move toward Jerusalem. If you aren't there already, Luke chapter 20, or I'm sorry, chapter 19, verses 28 through verses 40, help us respond to this question, are you the one or should we look for another? Luke chapter 19, verse 20. Now, if you and I had been reading the second half of the book of Luke, we would know that Jesus has for some time set his eyes on the city of Jerusalem. It's as if the gospel has been walking down a steep hill, gaining momentum and speed as we get closer and closer to the city. Jesus' goal is in Jerusalem. And it was there in this city, the center of Jewish life, where Israel understood its relationship to God. Jerusalem, long before it was called Jerusalem, was the place where God provided a ram for Abraham. And Abraham declared on that place, here the Lord has provided, and it will be said forever that the Lord provides. It was in Jerusalem where David sat on the throne as king. It was Jerusalem where Solomon built God's temple and where God's presence dwelled among his people until that terrible day when his people were were removed from the land. So it would be in this place where Jesus would fulfill his mission here in Jerusalem. After many weeks of walking, our story tells us that Jesus drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Bethpage and Bethany are like two road signs telling us Jerusalem is just a few miles ahead. You're almost there. So Jesus turned to two of his disciples and said, Go into the village in front of you. And when you enter that village, you are going to find a young colt, a small horse. No one has ever sat on this colt. Untie it and bring it here. Here. And then he says, if someone asks you, why are you untying this animal, you tell them that the Lord has need of it. Now, why such specific instructions? Why does Jesus need a small horse? Jesus had walked all this way for weeks. Was it simply that Jesus was tired of walking and said, listen, I need somebody to carry me the rest of the way? Of course not. It's intentional an intentional image. When, after George Washington became president of America, he would travel throughout the 13 colonies in a covered wagon. But whenever he came outside of a town, so that to, in order to go through that town, he would get out of the wagon and would climb onto his white horse and would travel through the town or the city on his white horse. Why? Because there was an image that was important. Washington on his white horse was an important image, a visual testimony to his importance to the nation. When the people saw Washington on that white horse, they saw the authority and honor of the presidency. See, the cult is an important image. It's a visual testimony to Jesus' importance in God's plan for his people. Jesus had need of this animal because the cult tells us who Jesus is. Even the request is a sign of who Jesus is. Jesus has not gone ahead of the disciples. He he did not take advantage of them sleeping on the road and said, Let me check out the village to see what's there so I can tell the disciples what to get. He knew exactly what was there. And the gospel reminds us that everything Jesus said would happen, happens. Look at verse 32. So those who were sent away... So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. But why a colt to sit on? Why one that has never been sat on? Because a colt that has never been sat on is fit for a king, and only a king. And not just any king, the king promised through the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 says this about this king. It says that... uh, uh, Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a colt. The fall, the fowl of a donkey. Jesus is testifying to this very fact. He is the king. He is the one that the people had been waiting for, and they didn't even know it yet. Behold, your king is coming to you. Look at Jesus' instructions once more. Notice what he tells the disciples to say to anyone who asks them what they're doing. Verse 33 And they were saying, and as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord has need of it. The owners, the people who had rights to this animal, asked, What are you doing taking this animal? The disciples say, The Lord has need of it. When the Lord, the King, has need of what is yours, you give it freely into your service. There is no further exchange between the owners and the disciples. The colt was put into the service of King Jesus and his mission to Jerusalem. Jesus is the King. When the disciples returned to Jesus, they put their cloaks on the animal and placed Jesus on it. And as they went along the road, the other disciples spread their cloaks on the road. Never before in the entire gospel do we see this kind of image between the disciples and Jesus. The disciples are serving Jesus. They are placing the cloaks before them. They know what this is. This is Jesus' inauguration as he comes before the city announcing himself as king. So as they get closer and closer to the city, moving down the mountain of olives, all of Jesus' disciples, the twelve and everyone else who had become a part of this traveling company, rejoiced and praised God. They were singing and shouting, praising God for all that they had seen God do. Like the greatest trumpet players the world has ever heard, they use their mouths to sing, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It was one of the clearest declarations the the disciples could ever make about their belief in Jesus. He was their king. He was the king that they had been waiting for, the king who was promised, the king who would free the people from their enemies, the king who would make things right for the people of God. But not everyone on their way to Jerusalem appreciated the song they were singing. Scornfully, some of the Pharisees said to Jesus, Tell your disciples to be quiet. It's ironic, really. The Pharisees also believed God was going to do something for his people. The fact that they were on this road at this time means that they were going up to Jerusalem to celebrate God's redemption to, for his people in Egypt. And here they were, right in front of Jesus, hearing his disciples give God praise for what he was doing. And They couldn't see it, and they couldn't hear it. They would not accept Jesus as their king. Something incredible was happening in front of them. Something that testified that God was here among his people once again, but they couldn't see. And they would not hear. Jesus doesn't rebuke his disciples. Even if he had, he says to the Pharisees, it wouldn't matter anyway because the stones would shout in their place, something incredible is happening, and even the stones could see and hear it better than the Pharisees could. It was as if it was for this reason that the disciples were elated as they drew closer and closer to Jerusalem. But as they drew near, they looked back at their King Jesus. They noticed that He wasn't celebrating was crying there were tears coming down his face he was weeping for the city they weren't tears of joy they were tears of sorrow because the pharisees weren't the only ones who missed it the pharisees were voicing the ignorance of all the people jesus was the king they had all been waiting for but somehow the entire city missed it see the thing is jesus is our king yes But he's different than any sort of king we could have ever ever imagined. His mission is, yes, to free the people from their enemies, but they couldn't have guessed that it would be in this way. This method of deliverance was not the way anyone expected. Jesus came to Jerusalem to bring peace and wholeness, yes, but the way he came to do it was by giving up his life. Jesus didn't come to Jerusalem to sit on a throne. He came to die on a cross. Jesus came to rescue his people, but what they couldn't see or hear was that they didn't need rescuing from other nations or emperors. They needed rescuing from sin and death itself. The greatest enemies to our well-being, to our wholeness, to our peace, are not the government, are not our economic situations. These things are only signs of our brokenness. Our greatest enemies are sin and death. And Jesus came as our king to rescue us from the chains, but he did so by giving himself over to death so that we might have life. Are you the one, Jesus, we've been waiting for? Or should we look for another? Jesus sitting on the young colt, Writing into Jerusalem says, I am He. I am your King. If you want peace, if you want wholeness, look no further. And when we do, when I recognize that He is my King, I recognize the demands He has on all of me, not some of me. I can't have two kings competing for my soul. Either Jesus is my King or I've looked for another to direct my life. Am I? Are you looking for another for peace, for joy, for wholeness? Or does your life belong to Jesus, your King? And if it does, please do not think that all it means is that you get to have a great personal relationship with God. That's part of it. It's part of the beauty of the gospel, but it's only part of it. That is not all that our faith is about. When we acknowledge that Jesus is our King, we join the chorus of disciples in testifying to God's kingdom, God's reign. Our testimonies are just that. They are verses in a long song that rejoices in God's story of fixing what is broken. But we don't just testify with our personal stories. We testify with our very lives. Just as Jesus told John, watch my actions and decide for yourself whether I have ushered in God's reign. Jesus has entrusted it to us until his return to live in such a way that others will see our lives and say, Yes, God reigns. Peace and wholeness can be experienced in the presence of God through Jesus, our King. Church, we are here to empty ourselves. the sake of others so that others can see that God reigns. See, this is part of the beauty of God's kingdom. As Jesus has ushered in this kingdom, we realize that it is doing battle with the old way of life, with the old kingdom. And as we are His ambassadors, His servants, we are beginning to tell the world that there is a new way of life. There is a new order to the way things are. And our words, our actions, our lives, our testimony to that very claim, we begin to show people the way God is undoing this world and reforming it into what He has always wanted it to be. Our lives are that starting point. Our testimonies are the example that God can take what is broken and make it whole once again. But it's not just for us as individuals. It's for us as a church. To be these testimonies, to be these stewards, to profess, to proclaim, to sing out, God is here. Our God has come and he is coming once again. And Jesus is our King, and the King is ready to bring peace and wholeness. Can we see in all of our lives, with all of our lives, with all of our interactions and inside and outside of these walls, can we see these as opportunities? to share the rich life we have in God. May our acts of kindness, our words of encouragement, be a service to our King and the expression of His kingdom. Are you the one, Jesus? Yes. Jesus is our King. And we have been invited to be testimonies of His great work of deliverance. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the great work that you are doing in our lives. We thank you for the incredible redemption that we have and that we've heard testimonies of. And Lord, I know that there are so many of us who also have other stories, stories that I've heard, stories that we've heard. And we know, Lord, that you are continuing to do a great work in us so that we might be able to do a great work in this community of testifying as to who you are and what you are doing. We thank you, Lord, and we love you. We pray these things in the name of our King, Jesus. Amen.